Hello there, and welcome to Gilded in Blood, the Horror Lit Podcast. My name is Kevin. You're joining me on a chilly morning. It's absolutely beautiful. It's fall-like, finally. The time has changed, so it's a little bit brighter in the mornings, but it's going to be a little bit darker in the evenings, and that suits me just fine. It'll suit me just better when the Congress just decides to give up this nonsense, but that's something for next year. Today, we have a short shock coming up for you. This is going to be Colin Insull's The Shepherd's House. Now, this is a story I venture to guess that very few of you will have heard of. Probably very few of you have ever heard of this author, though I did look him up, and he's got a lot of writing to his credit, but I first heard about him when I purchased a copy of Crooked Houses, a book of ghosts and haunted house stories put out by a wonderful press called Agaius Press. Now I'll spell that E-G-A-E-U-S. And I'm spelling that because I'd really like you guys to go out and find them on the web and look at some of the books that they produce. They, they produce super limited runs of their books. Uh, I'll look in here. I've got the my copy of Crooked Houses in front of me. Yes, this printing of Crooked Houses is limited to, get this, 325 copies. So as you can imagine, they're not cheap. They're a British company. So once you do the conversion from pounds to dollars, I think I paid $55 for this. And I know that some of you just had a, a brief blackout that anybody would spend that much money on a hardback book. But guys, if you're a book nerd like me, and I have to believe that at least some of you are, you want something like this on your shelf. It's so lavishly produced. It's absolutely gorgeous. It has wonderful end papers. They usually go into uh, some old books and old art to pull illustrations from. The paper itself, uh, listen... Oh, yeah. It's nice. It's really thick, good paper. These are just wonderful, wonderful books. But the best thing about them, aside from the quality of the making, is the editor, Mark Beach, goes out and seeks out stories that do not fit the mold anywhere else. I, I, it's hard to explain, and you'll probably get a good idea when we talk about this story today, but it's hard to explain how just skewed these stories are. I don't mean extreme. Uh, in general, they don't. They don't go to the really gory or really violent areas. That's that's not what these stories are really doing. They harken back to kind of the atmospheric, really creepy stories of like the 19th and the eight, uh, 19th and the 20th century, early 20th century, maybe even sometimes the 18th century. Just older feel, even though almost all of these stories are brand new stories and often written specifically for this anthology. I think I have seven on my shelf because I'm addicted, <laughs> but these are wonderful, wonderful collections of short stories. They come out maybe once or twice a year, but if you're interested in finding some short stories, they're doing something drastically different from what other short stories are, are kind of doing at the time, I really urge you to go check out Agaius Press. If you can find them secondary market, that's good. Uh, I know that there are some out there, but I like to have mine right off the, off the press because sometimes if you 
don't find them in the secondary market, they're gone. You, you can never find them again. And that, that bugs me. <laughs> uh, I truly am addicted to these books. So try to, try to find one of these anthologies and check out some of the really interesting ways that they approach short storytelling and specifically horror short, horror short storytelling. But let that all aside, let's go ahead and talk about the story that we're here to talk about today. And that is Colin Insull's The Shepherd's House, collected in Crooked Houses, put out by Agaius Press. Guys, go check them out. All right, enough of that. Let's get into the story. Now, the story starts right off with an excerpt from a diary or from a an old book that was that purports to be from 1865 and it uses those common tropes of stories from that era you have uh, the epistolary kind of feel of it the i narrative the archaic language etc and what it's talking about is in this town a, a strange wasting disease spreads through the populace so people will get sick they eventually just kind of lose all of their energy, all of their strength, and they pass away. But what makes this unique is that it's always accompanied by a hallucination of a house up on a particular hill in the town. Now, notice there is actually no house up there. If you're walking along and you're well, <laughs> you're not sick with this disease, you're walking along, you just see the hill. It's, it's a beautiful hill that goes up there. But if you become ill with this disease, when you look up there, now there is a house. And the spectral figure of a shepherd, you start to see that figure in the windows of the house. And eventually, as the pr disease progresses, whenever you look up at the hill, the figure is now closer and closer. Uh, first, he's at the door and then he's halfway across the hill, and then he's right outside your house. And eventually, as you get very, very sick, he's standing by the victim's deathbed, seen only by the dying person. Now, when the person dies, there's this unexplained bruise above the corpse's knee that fits the size and shape of a shepherd's crook. And if you don't know what a shepherd's crook is, which I, I hope that very few of you fall into this category, think of a candy cane. That's what the candy cane really kind of came from, is a, a candy version of a shepherd's crook. So it, it's, it's a long staff with kind of a hooked top. And these people who die, all of a sudden, when they die, there's this bruise above the knee that looks like somebody has yanked their body with a, with a shepherd's crook. Also, a skein of rope that the, the shepherd is seen holding. There, there's a mark of that somewhere on the body, too. Now, this is very odd. I understand. It's very, very strange. But... To make it a little bit more sinister, the victim will often describe the hill in front of the shepherd's house as littered with the bound and suffering bodies of previous victims. And that leads one to believe that to be taken away by the shepherd does not mean, you know, transported to a better place or any of those uh, euphemistic things that people say. No, it means to suffer eternal torment on the hill, bound and suffering on this hill after being dragged away by the shepherd. So this is all given at the very outset of this story by this, by this book from 1865. And it's 
jarring to read. You're trying to wrap your head around this. What in the hell is going on? Well, at that point, we jump forward to modern day, for, for lack of a better term. That shift to modern day and a third-person narrative as we start to talk about our actual main character, and we'll get to him in just a moment, it tells the reader that this is a tale of the past encroaching on today, like past sins, you know, monsters from a go. We have that type of story going on here, but it's always connected to the idea of illness, that it's it's not just that it afflicts people who have guilt in their past or or who have families that are cursed or anything like that. That's what you would probably expect from a typical short story of this nature. No, it's attached to illness. So the best thing I can think of to describe it is it is the ghost story or the haunted house story as infection. And not necessarily in the same way as, say, something like The Ring or The Grudge, where a a curse kind of follows a person to their death and that person can pass that on. It's not the same thing here. It's that when you become ill with this sickness, it comes with it this entity, almost like death, but there's something more to it that we'll get to. And it's just absolutely fascinating. It's certainly something I had never read about before in my entire life. So I was kind of instantly hooked on this story. I was like, this is the ghost story as something that I've never really conceived of before. So let's let's keep going here. It's noted that the shepherd is always portrayed in yellow. And I think that's an important point because whereas Colin Insull doesn't really wear his influences on his sleeve like many other people do, I feel like that is probably a possible reference to Robert W. Chambers's The King in Yellow, which is a fantastic set of, I think, four short stories about a play that anyone who reads it brings destruction and and desperation to themselves and everybody around them. And it is about a figure in yellow. So yellow in weird or horror fiction has always had this reference or this, this connotation as kind of an evil color. And I just, I have to believe, and you know, on the off chance that Colin Insull ever hears this, hey, if I'm wrong, sorry, but hey, it's my story because you put it out in the world and I get to do with it what I want when I read it and interpret it. I think that's a reference to Robert W. Chambers' The King in Yellow, which all horror fans should probably go check out. Uh, I don't know if we're going to cover it in a short shock episode. Maybe we will. Anyway, let's, let's keep moving on. Now, our main character is Clive, and he comes back to the town after having grown up there. So he is well aware of the legend of the shepherd. And it's not really a legend. It's a reality that these people have to deal with day in, day out. They know that they could be afflicted with this disease. And when he comes back, he buys this house called Russet Wood. And it has many similarities of the accounts given about the shepherd's house. And we'll find out that Clive has a specific reason that he, above many other people, might know exactly that that is the case, because Clive has actually survived an encounter with the shepherd. 
when he was younger, I think it says when he was 19, he became afflicted with the disease. He got very, very ill, and he started to see the shepherd's house. As the shepherd grew closer and closer and closer, eventually the shepherd was standing over him on his deathbed, but all of a sudden the illness abated and he got better. But before he did, the shepherd puts in his hand a a chunk of wood that Clive has kept for a good luck charm throughout the years. This this gnarled piece of wood that he's it says that it still feels like the sap is running out of it. It's been torn from something. And the shepherd puts this in his hand before he leaves. And this piece of wood is not spectral. It 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 it's there. It's it's real. It's a it's a reality. So there's this crossing over of of the spectral and the real that blurs this line that makes the story all the creepier and all the more mysterious, really. Now we we know that this affliction only seems to affect this particular town, and we're told that it goes all the way back. There are there are records of this happening going all the way back to the Tudors, which were a royal family that uh, that era was from 1485 to 1603. So this thing is damn near ancient, this, this concept of the shepherd's house. So we're dealing with something much older and more sinister as we go through this. So Clive has come back. He knows what the the shepherd is, and he has bought this house that that holds many similarities to the shepherd's house. Now we kind of go back and forth between the the current day that's talking about Clive and and him coming back, and Doctor Bethel's book that that we had that excerpt from the beginning. From we get more of those excerpts throughout the story, and that book from which these passages appear were purged and burned after publication, and he died mysteriously in a fire. So there's also this sense that whatever this affliction is, there's this superstitious dread around it, which I, I guess I would have to say makes a lot of sense. If, if people were dying and being all talking about the exact same thing as they die, and then all of them have this mysterious unexplained bruise above their knee that fits with their story, you'd probably be superstitious about it too. You wouldn't want to talk about the damn thing ever. You, do, you wouldn't want any reason to visit that upon yourself or your family. So there's this desperation to keep quiet about the shepherd's house, but it it keeps coming through. Now, early on in the story, Clive has this dream in which he defends a cottage, uh, another house from the shepherd, and he wakes literally scratched and bruised. We, We almost have a nightmare on Elm Street situation where uh, whatever damage was done in the dream kind of comes through into the re- into reality. But he also finds that a local girl who has been dying and seeing the shepherd has rallied and is now getting better. So she is now in the same camp as he is. And while this may seem to be a good thing, it's actually seen from the from the viewpoint of the town as worse than that person actually just going ahead and dying and being taken by the shepherd. Because in all cases where someone is spared, another immediately takes their place. Within like a week, somebody else will fall ill and that person will not be spared. That person dies rather quickly. So there's this guilt that's built into this that if you've survived the shepherd, 
it's almost seen as though you have passed this off to somebody else to die in your place. So there's not a lot of love in this town for people who have survived the shepherd. And we see this in a very, very tense scene that at the wake of the person who did die, taken away by the shepherd, the mourners nearly attack and kill the girl who survived. And it's a very, very uncomfortable scene because there's all this grief going on here and grief makes people illogical. That's the, that's something that a lot of people who have ever felt heavy grief really know. It doesn't matter if it makes sense or not. Sometimes just lashing out at somebody else makes one feel a little bit better. <laughs> Nothing loves company more than misery. So it's an agonizingly tense scene where you really do think that these people are going to lynch this girl just because she survived the shepherd. But as she leaves town, because she's not sticking around here, in much the same way that Clive did not stick around the town after he survived the shepherd. So you start to see this pattern, and that's going to play into what the story is kind of leading to, a revelation about who the shepherd actually is. Before she leaves town, the girl reveals that the shepherd gave her a piece of wood as well, and that when the mourners started attacking her, she was about to point to a picture that was on the wall of the house of of the person who did die from the shepherd and say, that person looks a lot like who I saw to be the shepherd. So it's revealed that the shepherd actually changes. The shepherd is different for everybody who sees him or her and becomes prominent members of the town. A character says that the shepherd inhabits a family in the town and becomes those people. But what becomes clear is there are very few people who are spared the shepherd's crook. But as we see at the end of the story, Clive eventually dies and becomes the next shepherd after he has a vision of the house, house's past, uh, which was once the center of the town where four men, uh, as it says, who in ancient times preyed on the town were mobbed and killed and now the house itself has become this haunting presence of the town. So th there is this past evil that comes back. The members of the town who have actually survived the shepherd, they become the next shepherd. So that turns out to be Clive's destiny or his role in all this. We get a sense that this girl who left town because she survived the shepherd in the same way that Colin did will eventually return die there and become the next shepherd herself. So this is an ongoing sort of pattern of, I won't say specifically possession. It's not quite that because these people die and then become the shepherd. It's almost as though they are bound to service as the shepherd. So that's where the story ends. We, we realize the past of the shepherd and who the shepherd actually is and will continue to be. And the story really left me with a sense that I had just read something that was drastically ambitious and very unique and something that I had never even considered or thought of before. And it was a joy because as you read more and more, you realize that a lot of the things you read are very, very, very good and respectable and wonderfully written copies of other things that have come before over and over and over again throughout history. There's this 
maxim or this concept that there are actually only 20 stories and they just keep getting told over and over again, variations on them. But the further that somebody can jump away from the original of these and give us something, you know, there's this curious sort of alchemy that happens when somebody hits on a really original and interesting idea. You take two things that have kind of been dealt with before, you jam them together, and then all of a sudden, God damn it, you have something new. And those are my favorite types of stories. Of course, I don't come across them very often because it's hard to do that. And it, with more stories being produced every single day, it becomes harder and harder. That's It's always going to be more difficult to be unique in a world where stories keep coming out. So to f- really find that, that gem, that needle in the haystack of a story that does something so dramatically different than anything you've ever dealt with before, and really we're not talking about something whose constituent parts are things that are alien to us. We, we have possession stories. We have ghost stories. We have haunted house stories. We even have stories of, of illness being connected to a supernatural cause. But the way that Insole puts all these together was just really, really wonderfully, delightfully interesting and unique. And I just absolutely loved it. So <laughs> I usually say, go check this story out. I don't know how easy that's going to be because it's, it, as far as I understand, it's really only in this particular book, Crooked Houses by a Guy's Press. So if you really want to, I would definitely recommend trying to find a copy of uh, Crooked Houses on the secondary market. Go check out eBay. I think there were a few when I last looked maybe a year or so ago, but I don't know about it right now. But try to find this story. If you can't, Ah, that's okay. Sometimes that happens, but I, I just wanted this chance to tell you about this wonderfully interesting short story that I just never read anything even remotely like before. And if you have the opportunity to read it, please do check it out. If you don't, I'm glad that I at least got to pass it on, <laughs> pass the plot on to you. And I, I hope you'll always seek out those types of short stories, things that that's just do things just a tiny bit differently, because those are the real shining jewels in the crown of horror literature. All right, so that is it for today. Next week, we are going to have a full episode, and that is going to be Sarah Grand's Come Closer, a nasty little short book that I absolutely adore. And I think you will too. So if you're going to read the book before we talk about it on the podcast, you have your assignment. Thanks to Swarm for the use of his music. You can find this podcast at gildedandblood.buzzsprout.com or wherever you find your podcasts. And until next time, stay safe and stay spooked.